0: Hello again everybody and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, I'm based in Derry, Northern Ireland and as always I'm joined by my great friend Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hello Sebastian.
1: Hello Glenn, how's it going man? Yeah
0: good, I'm I'm, I'm building on our last conversation at the start, I'm I'm trying to see if I can continue to make adaptations to this introductory
1: part of our conversation. Maybe we can invite uh, someone to do some free consultation, you know, just offer like a bit of dialogue, or you know, some, yeah. something, something in a tweet or an email or something. but yeah, yeah. yeah. what, what's a new introduction for us?
0: Yeah, give us give us a new introduction on our on our on our social media. So if they were, if they were to make a suggestion, Sam, how do they go about doing?
1: Well, uh, Twitter, they can find us at at Change Talking. Instagram, it's Talking to Change podcast facebook it's talking to change and any direct communication whether it's to uh, suggest a new intro or maybe suggest some future topic or an episode or, or for other questions they can reach us uh, podcast at glennhines.com brilliant so today we had uh, a conversation exploring
0: motivational interviewing and harm reduction and we met with kisi clabour and and i'm just wondering what do you take away from today
1: well yeah so harm reduction is something that I guess really I didn't know that much about. I think I thought I did, and one of the things that I really learned from Casey is is sort of clarifying a misconception that I had, which was uh, that harm reduction and abstinence only models say are are kind of in two w- opposing camps. And well, and and so in the in the conversation with Casey, she talked a lot about harm reduction as being on somewhat of a continuum where abstinence can be on kind of one end of that continuum. Mm. And so harm reduction is something that uh, doesn't have to be in opposition to abstinence and they can actually, uh, and actually very often when people that are doing harm reduction work, they view it as a step or maybe several steps along the way to eventually Mm. help people get to some kind of abstinence recovery model, depending on what the substance is, depending on the context. So that was one thing. And uh, and later on in the episode, we got to talking a bit about, she was mentioning about the adaptations to motivational interviewing that would be needed in a community outreach type of uh, setting, both adaptations to how we teach motivational interviewing to those who do that work, but also just to the work itself and how Uh, A lot of these conversations that community outreach workers have with people are so far removed from a traditional office or clinic based setting that um, we might need to think about how to how to apply MI in really short periods of time, you know, five minutes, let's say, you know, thinking about doing MI in, in pu- more public settings or on a park bench, for instance. And, you know, it, it had me thinking about past episodes with with some of our guests talking about like working with the homeless and peer support services. But uh, it also had me thinking a bit about, you know, if, if you were to design a, a five minute MI intervention, what would that look like?
0: Mm. Yeah. And because what was interesting, she mentioned that idea of the active ingredients. What are the active? What are the things that make the most difference in an MI type conversation? And how do you, can you introduce that uh, into a situation that may be in a homeless compound, or and where someone's actually on a, on the street sex working? And and how do you how do you have a conversation where there may not be a specific target behavior as we would traditionally know it in motivation view? But she described, she talked about risks, about working with target risks at a, at a given time. And just that translation or the, that development um, that you were describing there, that I love the way that she used the metaphor of dancing That that's very familiar with people who are trained in MI, the difference between tra- dancing and wrestling with clients. And, and how can we bring across from the science what we know is good behaviour change into the art of human interactions and in those short and those challenging in those non-traditional settings and it's about that, how can we, how can scientists learn from artists and how can artists learn from scientists so that that whatever we take away, how can we learn to see the world uh, from a perspective that's different from our own but equally valid in a way that then expands our perspective so that there's more we can do for uh, for the people that we come into contact with. And I was trying to think can you actually be passionately humble? I'm not sure you can, but it, it certainly uh, Casey comes across as someone who has a great willingness in her own uh, self- exploration to assist inform what she knows it works, which is being humble in these situations, to have a, a, an open mind, to have a, a broader worldview. And she, she works at that and in her efforts to be good at what it is she does as a practitioner, but also to be supportive of other practitioners about how to support them, challenge their own ideas, to challenge their perspectives, to challenge their prejudices about individuals that they may come into contact with in a way that allows them to soften those to then be able to reach and connect. So that, that was set those those are certainly some of the things I took away from, from today.
1: Yeah, that thread of humility ran through quite a lot. Uh, humility in terms of, you know, working with people and the kind of approach that's helpful. Humility that can aid in the sort of curious wonderings of what brings someone to the place where they're perhaps needing harm reduction. or looking for that. So, um, yeah, you know, re- really interesting episode. We, we think you'll really like it. Yeah. So let's have a listen.
0: So good to see you, Casey. Thank you for joining us. As we do with every guest, we begin by asking the question. Tell us a bit about yourself, and particularly your journey into motivational interviewing.
2: Yeah, well, Glenn, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I am an addiction psychologist at the University of Texas at Austin and director for the Addiction Research Institute. Um, I've been practicing motivational interviewing for about twenty years now, almost. Um, I came to motivational interviewing actually during my graduate education um, at Oklahoma State, so I was mentored by um, Dr. Thad Leffingwell and um, he is a, a very strong advocate for motivational interviewing and so my training underneath him um, really helped to uh, set a strong foundation in MI in the work that I do. And then as I've transitioned throughout my research career, I do a lot of work in harm reduction um, and working uh, with outreach programs and and helping with people who inject drugs. So MI has played an important role in the work that I do currently as well.
1: And we also uh, really enjoy hearing people's stories about their first experiences with MI and what grabbed their attention or if there was a particular you know, client or some kind of anecdote that would speak to that.
2: Yeah. You know, I, um, when I was in my PhD training, I did a lot of training of physicians actually. Um, so the train, the trainer model. And I, I think what stood out to me is that MI is something that especially brief MI it's something that it's an art more than a science. Um, and I love, I love the art of MI. Um, I think when MI is done well, then it opens up a whole new world for clients. Um, particularly in outreach settings where I think clients aren't, Used to having their stories heard and be told, and so I think you know MI really has an important role, um, particularly in community outreach settings where we historically haven't talked about MI much and done much training with outreach providers. Most of our training has been with healthcare physicians and and nurses and emergency departments. Um, so with those traditional healthcare systems. So I you know I think an area for expansion with MI is is really looking more at the community health um, and some of the community work that's being done that we really haven't touched on much. Um, And I can think of one example that, that we see regularly out in the field now is a lot of our community outreach providers don't know how to have these conversations with clients particularly clients who are highly vulnerable so our unhoused clients um uh, people who inject drugs um who who just are experiencing a lot of of trauma and challenges um and so i think that's an an avenue for for expansion in the mi world as well
0: and given the fact that we're going to be spend some time looking then about the relationship between motivation and, and harm reduction and you talk about this group of practitioners as you describe them, community outreach for the audience, can you maybe say a wee bit about what is community outreach, who are community outreach and what makes them different from, from other health healthcare providers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, here in the U S we have, um, we have several different types of organizations that fall under that umbrella. And so we have community outreach providers. And, and when I'm talking about these um, individuals, a lot of times, they're they're also known as harm reduction workers. So these are individuals who, oftentimes, are people in recovery themselves. Um, they they don't necessarily have um, educational training in addiction or educational training in in therapy, for example. And they, um, but they're doing tremendous work on the ground. So they're handing out um, uh, harm reduction kits. Um, They're helping to link people to different treatment options and and into the healthcare system when needed. Um, They're on the ground building relationships with the people who use drugs community, um, just doing tremendous outreach work. Um, And so that that group, I think, uh, really is underserved from a from from my standpoint when it comes to um, educating them and helping them give them resources for having these conversations um, to facilitate linkage to treatment.
1: And I suppose it it might be a good time to talk a bit about harm reduction in particular and what what that means and and maybe how it differs from other views around uh, substance use and addiction.
2: Sure. So harm reduction has been around for 20, 30 years, it's been around quite a while, and we really saw the inception of harm reduction during the HIV epidemic. With harm reduction, so so what it is, is it's just a way of recognizing that not everybody is ready for treatment. So I think this ties in nicely with MI and the stages of change. Um, A lot of people in the pre-contemplation, contemplation stage of change, you know, they're not quite ready to go to treatment and treatment may not be a good option for them to be honest in that scenario. And so if we have a harm reduction Uh, philosophical viewpoint, then we will do what we can to reduce harms and to protect those individuals. So we recognize that they're not ready. We make sure that we do what we can to do no harm um, and that we also make sure that we can protect them so that they stay alive so that when they are ready, then they'll be able to access treatment.
0: Mm. so much of what we understand is the spirit of motivation which is that acceptance of the individual for where they're at compassion our desire to be supportive of them but in a way that that they're ready to accept from us and the development of the relationship in many ways is so important to the success of what's called harm reduction and i guess that given how significant the recovery or the abstinence model is across the world how do we help people who maybe aren't as familiar with harm reduction see the benefits of, of taking that time to meet the person where they're at rather than just going, look, you need to stop and when you're ready to stop, come back.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I think when we're thinking about harm reduction, there's such a strong stigma among the practitioner worlds of what harm reduction is. Um, And it's very unfortunate because I think there's a misunderstanding as well. Um, Really, what harm reduction is, is exactly how you described it's meeting people where they're at, um, which aligns very well with the MI Um, philosophy. And and one way, an analogy with MI that I've always loved is that you should be dancing. There shouldn't be much friction. And that's, that's what harm reduction philosophy aligns with as well. So you're meeting people where they're at, um, and you're dancing with them until they're ready to go to treatment. And I think it's like also acknowledging they may not ever get to that point. We can do what we can help to facilitate as much as we can, but also acknowledging that um, there will be clients who who don't transition into treatment and don't transition into recovery. Um, but it is our job to make sure that we are Um, protecting them in any way that we can and with the harm reduction philosophy what that means is that we acknowledge that that we can't control people's use that people will use Um, we treat them with dignity um, and we make sure that we give them the resources that they need to be able to use in a way that that protects them and keeps them alive
1: just wanted to clarify something you've used the word treatment a few times so that Mm -hmm. harm reduction so not everybody is ready for for treatment. And when you use the word treatment in that context, are you referring to abstinence in that sense? Or like, can harm reduction be its own form of treatment?
2: So harm reduction is not a form of treatment. I'll clarify that. Um It is not a form of treatment. Um It is a, a, a it is a lot like MI. So it's an adjunct is one way to think about it to um, services that you're providing. And so, you know, when we practice harm reduction um, and, and some examples of harm reduction, I think every day, if you think about it, what harm reduction is outside of the field of addiction, we practice harm reduction when we put on a seatbelt. Um, and that that's, pretty mundane at this point. Everybody uses a seatbelt, but 20 years ago, they didn't. Um, we, we practice harm reduction when um, we give somebody who has an asthma attack an inhaler. You know, th- we, we practice harm reduction, honestly, in, in most of the things that we do throughout um, our regular lives. We just don't recognize it. Um, when we wear a bike helmet, that's an, that's also an example of harm reduction. Um, and so, you know, basically within the context of addiction, what harm reduction is, is it's giving people strategies to make sure that they're not contracting Infectious diseases when they're using so, for example, making sure they have clean needles, um, which is very difficult to access in some areas, um, making sure that they they have condoms um, so that they're not spreading HIV and other diseases while they're using or, or while they're intoxicated. Um, making sure that um, we're doing what we can to prevent overdose. And I think this is where um, harm reduction really has a strong impact. Um, When we see supervised consumption sites, for example, um, and we see uh, uh, Narcan and Naloxone distribution. Um, These are very strong evidence-based solutions that help to protect and reduce harms among people who use drugs. Now, when we're talking about treatment, what does treatment look like? So one goal, and I think you you will hear this from a lot of outreach workers um, who are in the on the field, sorry, in the field, on the ground, you know, they'll talk about how it, their job is to keep their clients alive and hope that with one of their interactions, one day they're going to be ready um, to go to treatment. Now, treatment looks different for everyone. And so within the harm reduction approach, Um, You know, we talk about multiple pathways. Some people may not need traditional treatment. Some people may not respond to traditional treatment um, when the way we think of it. But making sure that we keep people alive, give them options. Um, So so a lot of the individuals who tree outreach workers are working with, they may not know how to access treatment. And so they do an important job of, of linking them to appropriate resources when they're ready.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like where there is life, there is hope, and yeah, exactly. um, if we can keep that hope alive, we don't know when, but we can create the opportunity for the possibility that this person may then decide to walk through the treatment door in whatever form that that may work for them. So, in many ways, it's just reinforcing. My understanding is is that look, we're just gonna we're just gonna create if it, if it's a holding pattern, we're just gonna create a holding pattern with the desire to. Reduce the likelihood that this situation is going to get worse, either because of what they're currently using or it can become more complicated because of an external or an extra issue that arises because of their behaviours. Mm-hmm. So we want to try and keep the, the risks from outside and inside to a, a minimum while they, they develop the insights or the whatever is necessary for themselves to go, you know what, I've had enough of this, show me the yeah. door.
2: Absolutely, you know, and I think that's that's challenging as a practitioner because we, you know, we especially in the healthcare model, we want to fix people. We want we want to um, do it on our timeline and, and do it quickly, and, and I think that's a huge challenge. And so, it's there's a lot of humility that is required, particularly with healthcare professionals. Um, in, in working in the field of harm reduction, um, it's acknowledging that we are not the expert, um, that that the individual who's using drugs is an expert in their own story um, and and with their own life. And so we can do what we can to support them along that line. And where harm reduction comes in is um, that that's one modality of supporting them in their journey um, and, and making sure that they have the support and the resources that they need, as well as building that relationship so that it's a safe place for them to come to when they are ready and when they need help.
1: I guess it has me thinking a bit about the word harm and what are the types of harms that you and and people in your field are trying to reduce. You've mentioned things like extreme forms of harm, you know, drug overdoses. I suppose transmission of diseases uh, may be less extreme in an immediate sense, but certainly extreme in terms of passing on deadly illnesses and such. Is there work done at all in the harm reduction world around maybe someone who is a heavy drinker and has gotten into some trouble with that, but perhaps isn't living a life on the edge of, of some extreme event, if that makes sense, and and is you know kind of maybe confronted with somewhat of a, a choice about quitting or not quitting or, you know, and and is just wanting to maybe live with drinking alcohol, but not, you know, giving up entirely. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, my early work, um, I did a lot of work with college students and binge drinking in Texas. Most of the work related to harm reduction, because a lot of harm reduction practices are still illegal in Texas. Uh, If we think of syringe exchange, we think of um, consumption, safe consumption sites. Those are all illegal in Texas. Fentanyl, distributing fentanyl testing strips. So a lot of the research historically has been in alcohol, actually, and marijuana. To answer your question, basically, you know, one way that we think of reducing harms is by reducing quantity and frequency, of the amount somebody's consuming, how often they're consuming alcohol. And so a harm reduction approach instead is, instead of telling college students that they um, should be abstinent and not drink, which for a lot of college students is not a realistic expectation, it's giving them options. So it's providing, for example, at fraternity parties, It's providing a mocktail station, so where they actually have a choice between drinking alcohol and not drinking alcohol, but it looks the same. It's teaching them behavioral strategies of reducing, so in between every single drink, you consume um, an alcoholic beverage. I'm sorry, in between every alcoholic drink, you consume water. Um, that way you're you're reducing the um, quantity during a, a drinking period. And so it is, there are um, quite a bit of strategies that are harm reduction approaches that we actually use in the field of alcohol.
0: And even even with Seb asking that question, it brings us back, I think, to the point you were making, earlier, but just how many other harm reduction efforts we're already making. And, and anybody who's listening here that maybe in a, t- in a tobacco clinic, Maybe supporting someone reduce the number of cigarettes they smoke, that in itself is a form of harm reduction, that it's it's everything up to the point of abstinence is a form of harm reduction.
2: Absolutely, yes, yes. And, and it's an important acknowledgement because I think that helps reduce the stigma associated with harm reduction. A lot of people can't quit smoking cold turkey. Mm. Um, you know, we we do a harm reduction model when it comes to smoking cessation, where, where we're reducing um, and, and starting to change the environments in which they're smoking. And that that is a very good approach for a lot of people, a lot of evidence support, supporting that approach. But we don't think about that as a harm reduction technique or a harm reduction. Strategy, but
1: it is mm. right now in in our discussion and when we met, you know, a week or two ago to kind of pre-plan this. You know, that idea of harm reduction as actually being on the same continuum of care as abstinence models, like that's something that for me was I don't know maybe it should have been more obvious to me, but for for some reason I had felt like these were two you know kind of warring camps within the field of addiction treatment and you know, you're either one or the other. And I suppose like so often with such supposed wars that maybe there's more commonalities than, than I, than people think, or that I thought.
2: Yes. You know, I think that, that is something we tend to think of it as a dichotomy. So you, you're either in the abstinent camp or you're in the harm reduction camp. I'm in both camps. Um, you know, I think there's a place for harm reduction. There's a place for abstinence and in, in an ideal Um, scenario, we would have practitioners utilizing both Mm. of those philosophies. Um, you know, it's not abstinence only. It's not harm reduction only. But that's where we are today. That that is how our practice in the field of addiction really, really is. Um, and so, I think you know, this is an area. It's, it's an opportunity for us individually as practitioner, healthcare practitioners to kind of explore our reasoning for being in one of those camps and and why we don't see why the, we see them as challenging each other mm. um, when in reality. We They really support each other. Um, I, I would argue one of our goals in the field of harm reduction is to get people into recovery. It may not be abstinence specifically, but into recovery. And I think that that is um, a goal that, that most practitioners have for their patients, uh, is to make sure that they s- sustained long-term recovery. Um, now that I think where the challenge is, is how we view recovery. Um, because a lot of practitioners, and this is where the two camps kind of diverge, a lot of abstinence-only practitioners say, "Well, you can't use any substances. Um, you can't if you if you're recovering from a heroin addiction, then alcohol is out of the question." Um, and so I think you know that's that's where we start to diverge in in how um, these camps um, interact with each other is because a harm reductionist will say, "Well." Um, if they're using alcohol and it's not causing any harm, then it, that's completely fine. But a person in the absence-only camp will say, well, that's a slippery slope. It can lead them to relapsing in their heroin addiction. Um, and so, you know, I think I think that's really where the challenges lie with those two camps um, from a, di- a divergent perspective.
0: Mm. And in some ways, it, it strikes me that in, in those discussions, it's the, the service providers or the service Practitioners that are having that conversation in the absence of the client, and exactly. and, and exploring, you know, what what is it will work for you, and which is very consistent with MIE that the desire to to work collaboratively with with the client. And um, mm-hmm. I guess one of the questions, the things I was curious about was, given too often we understand MA is having an, an intervention with a target behavior, so that the mm-hmm. practitioner goes in with an idea of what it is they're trying to change. When we think about people who are going out doing harm reduction work, who are doing that community outreach, how can you see them beginning to integrate MI where perhaps the client themselves or the service users themselves is is has no interest in in, so for example, changing their drug use, but the the practitioner wants to be helpful. Where, where do you see the AMI working?
2: Yeah, well, you just described a client who's in the pre-contemplation stage, and so mm. there there's a com there's a conversation that can be started there as it relates to changing their drug use behavior, for example, um, even for individuals who are in the pre-contemplation stage. And so, you know, I, I think one, understanding the setting is really important. So in the field of harm reduction, and this is this ties in really well to MI, there are three components that we um, think about. Um, the first, is it's called risk, the second is called set, and the third is called setting. So risk, set, setting. What risk means is, you know, getting at this, Glenn, that you were talking about, what risk are you discussing with the client? Mm -hmm. Um, So we might be discussing drug use. That might be their primary risk. It also might be sex work. That might be their primary risk. Um, It may be that they um, don't have a safe place to live. You know, it it may be other types of things. So you're determining, you know, what risk are you discussing? So instead of thinking about it in behaviors, harm reduction thinks about it in risk. And oftentimes risk is a behavior. There are behaviors that lead to risk. Um, The other thing, the second thing that we think about is set. So what is the mindset that someone is bringing into the situation? Um, So this may be thoughts. It may be their mood. It may be the client's expectations. Um, what is their mindset? And then the third one is setting. So this is what is the physical, what is the social environment of where that person is? What is their perception of how they can promote risk or reduce risk in that setting? And so that, that's really what we're thinking about when we're having these conversations or, or we should be thinking about when we're having these conversations with clients out in the field. Um, and when we're talking about you know reducing um, having a target behavior, I think it's having a target risk that we're focusing on, and that may change from week to week when we interact with clients, um, it, it, depending on the set and depending on the setting.
1: Yeah, and thinking about the role MI uh, or an MI-style conversation has, it, it seems like that risk component is maybe a more obvious place where MI can live well and, and kind of fits, fits easily. It strikes me now, especially, um, you know, with Bill and Steve getting ready to publish the fourth edition of, of the main text, and it seems like their efforts are very much about moving beyond behavior and thinking about the application of MI in broader ways. I, I imagine MI-style conversations could fit alongside a, an exploration of set and perhaps even setting, that while it might lead ultimately to changes in behavior you know, thinking about one's physical and social environment, maybe there's some changes that a harm reductionist would explore with a client in thinking about changing their physical or social environment, or perhaps even the mindset piece, you know, styles of thinking and and kind of maybe applying other therapeutic approaches that someone might be ambivalent about. So anyway, just wondering if you had some thoughts
2: on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I I think that so one of my colleagues, Liesl Neidiger, she's at Johns Hopkins. She and I conducted a study with black and Latino women who were mothers here in Austin. Um, This is about two years ago. In, In that study, what we found is before we can really even tackle substance use, we need to address things that place them most at risk. So for example, so a lot of these women experienced IPV, so interpersonal partner violence. And in a situation like that, that that risk, there's such a danger with where they're living and, and with that relationship, um, that setting, that you really can't tackle changing a person's behavior or changing substance use because that's not at the top of their priority list. Their priority list is... is living um, and being safe. And so when you take into account the set and the setting, then that adds a layer of MI where MI in this situation, the the target risk might be getting them to transition out of their current living situation into a domestic violence shelter. Um, And then after that, then the target risk may be substance use. Um, So I think it's acknowledging that substance use may not be the primary driver in every situation that we should be focusing on from an MI perspective.
0: Mm. While you may be a drug worker, there's other things going on in this person's life. There's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if we take that into account, then am I in a position to begin to meet the needs where it's most pressing for them? And they understand Mm -hmm. that Perhaps the drug use itself represents a way of coping or uh, maintaining the, the their own sense of safety in this situation that's much worse for them than their drug taking. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and again, I think that's that's something that'll be very interesting for for our audience to recognise that, that that while someone is taking drugs, that there's there's so many layers to this individual that am I as a practitioner prepared to try and understand where those layers are at? What is what is it they're particularly willing to talk to me about that may lead to the place where I can eventually do the piece of work that I believe is my primary role, which in this instance is drugs. And and for you then, Casey, you mentioned that you did you've trained people. What what is it that that you you notice that the staff that you're meeting and training on them MI are latching on to the most that that they find most beneficial for them?
2: You know, th- when we're doing outreach, it's interesting because the outreach workers' their mindset is very different than what we have in the healthcare fields in the healthcare space. And so, you know, their goal is to reach as many clients as they can, to build relationships, and um, to you know really just just do what they can to keep them safe and keep them alive. Now, when we're training, it's very different because we're teaching them how to have conversations about difficult things. Um, and so what we found is that it's a lot of the outreach workers that we do work with, they often have trauma themselves that has been unresolved and never, never really explored. And so what we found is that having these, teaching them how to have these conversations, it elicits that their experience of trauma. Um, and so, you know, I think, From an MI perspective and a trainer perspective, having a trauma-informed care approach to um, acknowledging that, you know, we we really don't train outreach workers at all um, in how to um, handle these situations. And so we're kind of relying on their own life experience. And I think for us, um, for my team, it's been really important to kind of see how um, teaching someone to have these conversations uh, with somebody else actually does a lot of self-reflection for for themselves. I'm not sure if that answers your question. I yeah, kind of went it, the yeah, it does
0: because it, again it, 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 ta- it taps into the sense that you know perhaps we're making a lot lot of expectations about the lived experiences that these individuals have, and mm-hmm. uh, that that should that should be enough. Should sure, they've been through, it, they should get. But what you're exploring is, listen, we can equip them to have conversations, science science based conversations. That we know yeah. that work, that these mm-hmm. people are going out to these difficult places to work with these individuals with great needs because they care because, mm-hmm. because of their own experiences. And what we can do is we can give them the resources to, to be able to do what they're trying to do in a, in a more efficient way
2: exactly so they they have the heart and they have the passion but they don't have the training and the education like we have and so when you can combine that heart and that passion um with the evidence-based conversations with the evidence-based science um and and treat, uh, programs I think that's where we could have significant impacts
1: it feels like this topic is uh overlapping with uh, some previous, episodes that we've had, just to uh, mention, you know, we had a previous episode on trauma-informed care. We had a previous episode with uh, Danny Lang working, uh, you know, working with people who are homeless. There was another one there that just escaped me, but peer support, that, that's where I was going with here. Right? Are the workers that you are training and part of your community outreach, are these people that you would also consider to be peer support specialists or, or not necessarily? How does that fit into this?
2: Some of them are, um, a lot of them are not. And so I I think they have aspirations to become peer support specialists, um, but many of them haven't completed the certification and and the training required even in that capacity. And so a, a lot of times, um, the individuals that we're working with are recent; they're new to recovery, and then we're we're putting them in honestly in high risk situations, um, and so we don't have a lot of guidelines and, and standardization when it comes to harm reduction outreach efforts. Um, and, and we, I think, what's unfortunate is as a system and as a structure, we don't support um, their mental health and and their um, outreach. Um, because, you know, we, we are putting them in very challenging situations um, that can compromise their sobriety as well. Um, and so I, I think they actually do need extra supports. Um, and that's, that's really an area that if, um, if we value harm reduction like we say we do, then we also need to value our harm reduction workers and, and our outreach teams um, by providing them with these evidence-based trainings and support.
0: So there's something significant about the culture of supporting mm-hmm. individuals with uh, with drug-related or sex-working uh, behaviours that, that are putting them at risk that, that makes them different to how we treat someone with smoking or even alcohol or asthma or, or something else that, that we've already identified that has harm reduction already embedded in the, the type of support that we offer them. And it sounds mm-hmm. like the, 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 it's almost like understanding that the, the workers are... If you think about the twelve steps, these are these are the twelve steppers. These are the people who've been through the process, got some recovery, and now they're reaching out to to their peers or friends and saying, "Look, I have found a way out of this. Can mm-hmm. I help you? Can I help you with that?" And again, it's a the challenge is about our willingness to let them just get on with it, with
1: mm-hmm. while
0: not taking into account their needs and the risks that we're inviting them to take. That somehow it's like. This is a cheaper option. That's just that these people look after themselves. It's like the lepers of, of, of olden times at the age of society. I wonder what thoughts you have about how we can go about changing that cultural approach or attitude that we have towards people who use drugs or are in the sex work trade.
2: Yeah, you know, it starts with our laws and our legal system. Um, to be honest, and so you know, a lot of of their behaviors and their risks are associated with the potential to be incarcerated. Um, and and so it, it ostracizes them. It does kind of create that um, you alluded to lepers um, in the olden age. It, it it does create that environment and that stigma. And so I think that's where it starts. To be honest, I think um, it starts with decriminalizing a lot of these behaviors and risks associated with it, and then that will in turn help to change the culture around it when we're talking about culture change and culture shift um but honestly it's it's going on having conversations um it's just talking and, and you'll hear their stories. And that's where, you know, a, a lot of like adverse childhood experiences and trauma, um, from early on, you, you learn about their life stories and you understand, you have a, a lot more empathy, um, and understanding for where they're coming from and and why they're engaging in those risky behaviors. And so, Um, As a practitioner, that has been the most important thing for me in in changing some of my early stigmatizing views and and, um, ideas is just going out and having conversations, um, getting to know people who are in that space. Um, and then it, it really changes your perspective on um, what harm reduction is and helps you to see how abstinence-only uh, philosophy, abstinence philosophy and harm reduction can co-mingle and coexist.
1: Yeah, I mean, so much of what you've been referring to is, I guess, is sort of like a zooming out from the specifics and nitty-gritty of a behavior, say fentanyl use, right? That, like, That is a risky behavior. There's a lot of harm to be had there. We hope people don't do it. And if our goal is really narrow in scope and we're only looking at the drug use behavior, there's a lot that we're going to miss. Now, that's not to say that everyone who's trying to help someone reduce or stop using fentanyl needs to also be a trauma therapist. There, there are other skills and specialties that can come alongside the outreach worker. But part of what I think you're saying that MI brings to the table from a practitioner's standpoint is is more of a broader perspective on and an appreciation for how this person got to where they are today and also a broader perspective of what their needs are mm-hmm. going forward. And then the outreach person might be able to address those needs directly or Maybe find someone else that can that can help, depending on what the person needs.
2: Yeah, and you know, I think when we're working with um, highly vulnerable populations, that outreach worker, that peer support specialist you know they they have that relationship established and so they're they're not obviously they're not trained to provide medical care they're not trained to provide substance use treatments um to prescribe buprenorphine for example but they have that relationship already established that can help to link them to the right people um but but we also need to educate them on who to link them to um and and how to do it because i think that that's another challenge that we have in the harm reduction field there's this mindset among harm reduction workers even that this is our community we'll protect ourselves we we do it ourselves That's something Mm. that we hear all the time um and so have reducing the stigma associated with traditional um services is important as well
0: Mm. so there's learned ways of thinking about each other how we think about drug users and how drug users are thinking about us and i wondered given the fact that you know the the idea that that we're inviting people as as either outreach workers or as individuals who work within more statutory healthcare providers to understand the life and the, the reasons for an individual's drug use and particularly taking into account the, the trauma that the, the adverse childhood trauma experiences that, that may have that have may have led to these decisions. For people who are out there, what sort of things might you be inviting them to ask themselves just to begin to consider what is it that's informing my understanding of drug use or sex work or what are, what are some of my cultural influences that may be inhibiting my ability to, to really reach out or support or things that may be getting in my way to be more harm reduction in my thinking?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I think questions that I ask myself, I'll, I'll start there. Okay. Um, you know, we it's natural for us to... Have thoughts and ideas and and um, judgments based on our personal experiences, and so I, I think it's always important to, um, like I mentioned before, come come to that individual with a sense of humility. We're not the experts; they are the expert, and our job is really to understand. Um, where they're coming from, and then how we can do no harm, and how we can help them. Um, and so, you know, I think that sense of humility is, is the key priority there. But other questions that we can ask ourselves, why do I have such a negative response to when somebody says harm reduction. What what's going on there? Why why am I experiencing um, such a an adverse um, reaction to the concept of harm reduction? And and what we'll find a lot of times is that it's not supported by science. Um, what what our predispositions are towards um, one philosophical view or another. Um, I think another question that we can ask too is. How did this person get here? What have their experiences been like? Um, particularly when they come into the healthcare setting, most of these individuals um, have experienced severe stigma in interacting either with the emergency department personnel, um, with first responders and EMS. Um, or they've had negative experiences, you know. Whenever they've they've had to go to the hospital, um, when they've interacted with the healthcare system, and so if they're resistant to us, trying to understand, you know, what what if what's the resistance here? Is it something that I'm bringing? Um, is it some? Is it a product of this environment, this setting, um, and how can I help to reduce that? Honestly, what it might be is going and having that conversation by a tree outside on a park bench instead of having that conversation in your clinical office where it's sterile. Um, and there may be, the client may be experiencing um, adverse reactions based on their, their stigma that they've experienced with the healthcare setting. So those are just some key things that, that I think about um, whenever I'm working with these individuals.
0: are actually great questions for anybody to think about anybody. Not just individuals with these profound difficulties. You know, for mm-hmm. anybody who's helping anybody, you know, why do I think this way about this type of person? Mm-hmm. Why, and how did this person end up having to come to see someone like me? Mm-hmm. And what was that like for them? Yeah, so there is something really humble about that. The space I need to create to just stop, think, stop, and just pay attention to really how did they get here. To, mm-hmm. to bring them to the front of my mind. There's something quite empathetic about that invitation as well.
2: Yeah, and I think acknowledging too when we're having MI based conversations and there is resistance and resistance presents itself is acknowledging it may not be, re- they may not be resisting me mm. specifically. It, it may not be this this interpersonal dynamic. There are other dynamics coming into play here. And so it, it, it may be literally, it, it may just be being in. Um, a, a patient care room at a clinic. Um, you know it, it may be having to walk into a healthcare setting. Um, there, there are a lot of different components that may be factoring in. And so you know when, when we're exploring resistance um, with our patients, acknowledging that um, all of those factors coming in from their setting, their environment, their social setting, um, that plays a role in, in how we have these conversations.
1: Yeah, that, that question, how did this person get here? You know, the word here could mean so many different things. And, um, I, and just that, again, kind of zooming out perspective and, and sort of curious exploration of how they got here can be so helpful. I, I'm, I'm just thinking of something not necessarily in the addiction world, but with clients who don't tell the truth and how we can, can kind of lock horns with people and we feel defensive about it, or we're, we're caught off guard or we're worried that we're being manipulated or something. And, and there's just so much energy that can be spent in exploring the truth or making people tell the truth. If we can even do that. And none of that takes that kind of perspective and curiosity that you're inviting us to take with that question. Mm-hmm. Um, why might someone not want to tell us the truth? Mm. Well, there could be all kinds of reasons, um, and it might have anything to do with us uh, as individuals. And it probably has something to do with their histories. And if we are just curious about that history, maybe we can get to the other side of that. And who knows? Maybe someone's more truthful with us.
2: Absolutely, yes, yes. I think that's a really important acknowledgement within the field of addiction as well. And so, you know, we one thing that we challenge are challenged with as practitioners is. Um, Are they telling us the truth about their substance use? Um, A lot of times it may not be quite exactly accurate. And so, you know, making sure that we're exploring that. Is there something within our relationship, which most of the time it's not our relationship, that the challenges, but I think um because we are so egocentric, we do think about, okay, well, there must be something wrong with with this relationship or something that I'm doing. Um, but in reality, it it may be something much more um, significant, such as, well, I don't want this documented in my electronic health record system um, that I'm, I'm using heroin, for example, um, because I'm, I'm a medical doctor and I don't want that documented in case somebody goes into my records and then I could lose my license and, and wouldn't be able to practice. So, you know, I think even exploring some of that, that that's all about exploring resistance um, to the conversation as well. Um, and just acknowledging that we need to to go a little bit deeper um, in our conversations w- that particularly are focused related to MI.
0: Mm. So for yourself then, thinking about what you're saying is, how do you see the future of the relationship between motivational viewing, harm reduction, and these community-based as well as the traditional healthcare providers?
2: You know, I would love to see MI adapted for that population and for this group. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't. So there have been a couple of studies, not not very many studies on MI and harm reduction and outreach workers um, within this space. But. Um, you know, we we don't have it, it, traditional MI training. Um, probably doesn't work within this space, and so it needs to be adapted. I would love to see that adapted version. I I think what we will eventually see within the next um, five to ten years is um, harm re- the field of harm reduction is going to evolve significantly. There are a lot of resources being allocated within this space. I think we will start to see a professionalization of the harm reduction workforce where they probably will be required to have a, a, a specific level of training, whether that's a certification in harm reduction or whatever that may look like. I would love to see MI as a component of the required training for um, outreach workers. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, our our training system may not be conducive to this population because a lot of them, um, you know, have walked in the shoes of the clients that they serve. And so they may not be able to sit in a room with a, a teacher and have the traditional MI training. So I think we also will see MI adapted from um, not just a content perspective, but also from a structural perspective to better meet the needs of um, outreach workers and and how they learn best.
1: Yeah. Just curious to hear more about the adaptation piece there. Um, Certainly something specific you're describing is, is a model of training that takes into account different settings to use that phrasing for people who maybe can't access a conference-style presentation or traditional kind of continuing education event. Uh, So maybe there's some other ways to go about training. Wondering about adaptations to the content of MI itself and what are some things that maybe a community outreach worker needs from their MI training that someone in a more traditional setting may not be as applicable
2: yeah. So, you know, I think if we think about the way a traditional MI conversation goes and and so let's just do decisional balance as an example. So if we're we're talking about decisional balance out um, in in the streets um, and they're in a homeless encampment. Um, and, and it's not necessarily a private, um, area. You know, we have, we have to figure out how can we have these conversations one on one with individuals? Uh, or is it even one on one? You know, is, is it more of a group setting? Um, how, but how do we have these conversations in these settings and in these environments that, um, you know, privacy may not be an option. Or if, if we are transitioning, we may only have minutes um, at most with these individuals. And so how, what, what are those active ingredients in MI that can help with this population um, from a harm reduction perspective? So, so maybe it's with MI having those, we're going to talk about this active ingredient of MI. Um, and then next week, we're going to do this one. Um, when I see them four days later, we'll do this. You know, how does that look? Um, And then also, you know, how do we document within the fields of harm reduction and, and outreach? Because oftentimes, you know, we're... Out in the streets, um, working with multiple clients um, back to back, and we don't necessarily have electronic health record systems in these organizations. And so, you know, what does documentation look like? How do do we need to consider HIPAA within these conversations? You know, what 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 are kind of the guidelines associated with going deeper and having these MI-based conversations and transitioning people. I think those are things that we need to start thinking about. Um, you know, is there an advantage to combining integrated harm reduction with with medical care and with with treatment in the healthcare system? Um, right now they're they're very um separate. And so we have harm reduction workers and then we have healthcare providers over here. And we don't work together. It's not integrated. And so, you know, I, I think over the next few years, we'll start to see science um, examining some of these questions. And hopefully, within the next five years, we'll have more evidence-based models that will um, better support harm reduction workers in the field.
0: Mm. It's almost like you're saying there's a, there's a spectrum that mirrors the, the very thing that we're talking around harm reduction, which is there's a line that people travel towards abstinence, and at different points along that journey, they need different things from us, so that the practitioner has uh, starts off with, with an MI informed conversational style, in homeless settings rather than the pure MI, and perhaps they're going to work towards at some point using a pure MI type conversation with them. But what we're doing is we I love that idea. Of, you know, you're you're picking out the the aspects of MI that that fit the ingredients, the active ingredients, the things that work. And saying, mm-hmm. look, here's something we know that works. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And again, maintaining the spirit of am I even in the training of it, which is here's here's something about motivation, we know that works. What do you think about it? How can you see yourself employing this in the settings that you work in? What are the challenges that you might meet? How might you overcome them? And and inviting the, the, the trainee to mould the active ingredient and in, in the fashion that will work best for them.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and work best for their client mm. as well. Mm. Yes. And so, you know, if we start having these conversations out in the field early on, um, if we're thinking about that care continuum, mm. then what we're doing is we're training clients at the very beginning of that spectrum of that continuum to have these conversations and to start thinking along these lines And then as we transition them into a more structured healthcare environment where we have a a clinician who is trained in MI, who can have a true hour long MI session if that's, you know, what, what is needed, then they're used to having these conversations, they've already started to build trust with that. And so by the time it gets to that clinician, they can go deeper and they can explore more of a traditional MI conversation um, to transition them hopefully to that next phase in in a, a faster, more efficient manner.
1: Right. Maybe the way that we teach MI, generally speaking, of course, there's thousands of us out there teaching people how to do MI. So I'm sure there's different different ways of doing it, but in general, the the concept of the four processes, or as Bill and Steve are going to refer to it now, as the four tasks, maybe it it can feel as if when you're doing MI that you minimally have to go through the first three tasks of engaging, focusing, and evoking. Maybe you get to planning. Maybe you don't. I mean, that there's. I know they've talked about that as as something that I mean, some people can create change on their own without a specific plan that's that's agreed to with a practitioner. And perhaps there's a sense that each of those steps take a bit of time. And then when you're all said and done, it's 45 to 60 minutes later. And now you've had your MI session, whereas you're describing there of an encounter that could happen, you know, in the hallway of a homeless shelter or out on a park bench. And yeah, you might have five minutes with somebody. And so, I mean, you might engage with them. Engaging might sound like, how's it going this morning? And that might be your engagement process or task. And and you might rapidly get to the point of, of a focused conversation. And then there's a brief discussion around using a supervised consumption site. And maybe that's what it is. And maybe that's a three to five minute conversation. But the way that we teach MI may not lend itself to that level of flexibility and in the moment kind of creativity, I guess. Mm.
2: Exactly, I, I think that's something too that we need to understand currently within the field of harm reduction, it's all art. It's not a lot of science. There's science that supports some of the harm reduction strategies. But when we're out in the field um, and and the harm reduction workers are are having conversations, it truly is art, what they're doing. And so I think that's where we can bring in, hopefully, um, we can bring in some of the science to complement their art um, of having these conversations. And it may be, I think it's going to require a level of flexibility that you just mentioned, Sebastian, and a level of creativity among scientists to figure out you know what are evidence based approaches to using mi out in the field in these types of settings that we aren't used to. And I think it, you know, one of the advantages you were talking about engaging, they engage with this population mul- potentially multiple times a week or on a weekly basis. And so they already have an established rapport and relationship. And so it's it's teaching um, the harm reduction workers to have more targeted conversations. Um and but That requires us figuring out, Okay, well, how do we do this in this setting? What active ingredients should be prioritized? How do we adapt them to to different um, scenarios? But I really like your analogy of maybe the target risk or or target behavior that we're we're focusing on is having them use a a safe consumption site or going to access um, syringe exchange services. And then at each point of the continuum, there's a role with, for MI. And, and the goal, really, of MI is to get people into that recovery space. And so I think figuring out what is MI's role very early on in the pre-contemplation phase for these highly vulnerable, high-risk populations, and how do we better utilize MI to transition them across the care continuum?
0: Again, it's about the relationship. I'm just thinking about the, the idea of the arts and the science and the arts, that it's the invitation of how do we invite these scientists to want to dance some more, but also yeah. how do we how do we invite these dancers to be to be a little less freeform and to be a bit mm-hmm. more structured and that then mm-hmm. there's a, a dance continuum and um, that the scientists are teaching the, the, the artists something and the artists are teaching the sciences something. And again, it's back to that attitude. Can I open my mind to that 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 is different from me uh, mm-hmm. and that by allowing myself to see that then i become bigger and mm-hmm. in the becoming bigger then if my job is to help the more people i can help because i have expanded my vision has opened up and my choices have have, have grown as well
2: yes absolutely and i think you know acknowledging that that dance requires humility. I'll harp on humility. Um, It requires that humility for us to acknowledge that we can learn from each other. Mm. Um, We can learn from our clients. And then once we do that, then we really are all dancing together.
1: Mm. Casey, I'm quite curious about the work that you do in the context of living in Texas and not to make this political, although maybe my question is a tad bit political, It occurred to me that maybe there's a a harm reduction parallel when you're advocating with politicians. I imagine maybe you or certainly your colleagues are doing this sort of work. And how are you able to, I guess fundamentally is the question, how are you able to do this work in a state where much of what you're advocating for is illegal? And then how are you engaging with them in conversation that might bring that same humility that you would take with a client maybe when you're sitting with a Texas representative or, or something that maybe there's there's similar styles of conversation that you might have that the outcomes or the targets might be different.
2: Yeah. So what I hear you saying, Sebastian, is how do we have motivational interviewing conversations with politicians to advance the, the political infrastructure locally? Um, yeah, you know I suppose that's, that's a way of putting it. <laughs> yeah that, that's a really good question. So you know one one thing to keep in mind i'm I'm not allowed to lobby. I'm, I'm really not allowed to advocate uh, just based on being an employee at a state institution um, And so one thing that we've done is you know we we're trying to use data and we're trying to use science to empower the voice of our communities um, and, and our community members who can have that voice we do meet regularly with representatives. And, you know, one thing that, um, you know, I really like your idea, I hadn't thought about using MI within that infrastructure. I, I may start doing that. <laughs> but I think, you know, when we're, we really all have the same goal. I think that's, that's one thing that we need to really understand. Our goal is to save lives. Our goal is to um, improve recovery for people with substance use disorders. Um, And so finding our foundation um, within our our commonalities I think is very important. Now you asked about doing this work in Texas where things are, most of things are illegal. There is a significant amount of people who support harm reduction across the state. It actually is probably growing um, pretty significantly, particularly in the urban areas of the state. Um, for support for harm reduction work. I think, um, you know, Texas is now number three in the United States for deaths associated with overdose. Um, we have been hit extraordinarily hard with fentanyl in the last year. Um, and so, I think there's a growing understanding um, that harm reduction is necessary. Um, it, it's it's not, should we do it? It is It is necessary. And an easy... Harm reduction strategy that almost everyone agrees upon is distribution of naloxone or Narcan, um, and so that that's another common ground um, that we have. I, I think you have to, you know, we've talked a lot about dancing, um, so I'll use that analogy again. You have to, you also have to dance with um, politicians. You have to, you have to dance with um, people who use drugs. You have to dance with um, the agencies that support this work. And I think it's just honestly, I'm not sure how to answer this question. I'm also trying not to get in trouble. <laughs> um, um, let me think about this for I a think minute. What, I, think, I
0: think that what that does, Casey, is really helps us on. It's getting the insight into the dilemma within the culture of harm reduction and treatment, particularly with this group of people who, who I think. As you describe it, the the reason why there's so much stigmatization is because these are individuals whose behaviors are likely to bring them into a situation where they're at risk of incarceration. They're breaking the law. They're doing things that are harming themselves, but also they're doing things that potentially harm others. They're in burglar. They're burglarizing, and and they're also doing things that it's easy for vertical as the rest of us to judge as outsiders. Um, mm-hmm. and that's always been the case. These are these are the outsiders, and. The challenge that you're you're facing is how do we help the people? How do we help the insiders begin to consider the needs of the outsiders uh, mm-hmm. when it can suit us to have outsiders? You know, our lives aren't as bad because we've got them Um mm-hmm. Or listen, don't don't be worrying about us. Worry about them. Um mm-hmm. And so I can imagine, I can understand the dilemma you're facing, and given the fact that you're living in Texas and. And they're paying your wages, or they're they're they're, they're keeping an eye on you. Uh, but again, it, it helps us certainly for me, based in Northern Ireland, having an understanding of of the challenges, the real uh, cultural and political challenges that that individuals like yourselves who are looking at the science of this new way of being, relatively new way of being, and exploring how do we help other people change their minds to include mm-hmm. this possibility. Um, so we really appreciate the efforts that you are making in that field, the, the research that you're doing, the, the work that you're doing with individuals with lived experiences, uh, because it sounds like there's lots of people who are benefiting from the stuff that you and other harm reduction uh, advocates are uh, supporting across the world, not just in America, but across the world. Now many people's lives have been saved for that. With that in mind, as we come to the end of our our, our conversation, and we really appreciate your time, we normally ask our, our guests two questions. The first is, what what's what's happening in your life at the minute that may, may be work-related, may not, but that's capturing your attention and that you could share with us for a few minutes?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we just talked about kind of the political infrastructure and landscape in Texas, and I think that's something that has really... Really captured my attention and my team's attention over the last six months, um, just because you know policy directly dictates what we are allowed to do, what we're allowed to say. Um, you know, I think some of the, the new policies that are being enacted in Texas um, with the previous legislation that just ended, um, we'll be having to rethink, you know, how we talk about diversity and equity and inclusivity um, in all of our conversations moving forward. And within the space of harm reduction, um, that is a huge focus. Uh, DEI is a big focus um, on, on that. And so, you know, th- that that is something that's um, capturing my attention right now and really, having our team rethink, you know, how how do we do our work within um, this context, this political context, Um, but also how can we use science um, to kind of uh, advance policy advocacy and policy change? So what studies do we need to be conducting now within the next two years to help to support policy change in Texas over the next, um, for the next legislation session?
1: Certainly a challenge that Texas is not alone in, uh, in terms of scientists that are working in all sorts of, uh, spaces and feeling some headwinds that weren't there before and, and, figuring out creative ways to, um, to continue the work that you're doing. The other question we ask our guests is if people are interested in reaching out, if they have questions or, or want to follow up on something that you were mentioning on this episode, uh, would you be willing for them to do so and how should they reach it?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, To be honest, the quickest way may be Twitter. Um, So, it's at Casey Claiborne PhD. Um, The other option is by email, um, casey.claiborne at austin.utexas.edu.
0: And Casey starts with K.
2: Yes, that's right.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Casey, for your time, for your expertise and insights tonight. And uh, you've left a, left people, no doubt, thinking an awful lot about what it is they're doing that that could be considered harm reduction in, in their practice already and how that then influences their attitudes towards other people who may be using harm reduction in the ages of society and to recognise mm-hmm. that, that both, both sets are trying to do the same thing, which is to be helpful and um, how they can... Maybe be more supportive of those practitioners, be more supportive of those individuals who are trying to be helpful for people with more complex needs or different types of needs than than, than us who are working with asthma or, or mental health or whatever else that, that we we are much more comfortable with because it's us that's doing it. So thank you again for your time and we wish you all the very best. Thank you.
2: Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. All.